Well, welcome to a special episode of Take Me to Your Reader. I'm Seth. I'm Colin. And we don't have James with us, unfortunately, because his travel got in the way, uh, selfishly. But our normal episode for this month is going to be about the Andromeda Strain. We've actually already recorded it with James. Yes. But this special episode is about the Andromeda Evolution, which is the brand new sequel to the Andromeda Strain. And it's written by Daniel H. Wilson, who was kind enough to let us come over and interview him. So, hey, Daniel. guys. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming over. Yeah, it's great. Um, we've been big fans of yours for years. Um, we actually did an episode on The Nostalgist oh, two, awesome. three years ago. Episode 41. Yeah. yeah the that, short film. It, yeah. Oh, great. The short one. So we, we did that one. We called it a barn burner, where we just went over to James's house. All of us read the story, watched the movie, and recorded the episode. And, awesome. Uh, that was, yeah, that was a nice Yeah, one. Giacomo Shimini. Yeah. He did such a great job with that. He did. Yeah. That, was my, um, that was my consolation prize for Robopocalypse, the film. So, really? Yeah, they, uh, they were supposed to shoot Robopocalypse in, you know, Spielberg was going to shoot it in London, and I was buying plane tickets to go see the production when they delayed it. Long delayed it. Yes. <laughs> uh, still not dead. The zombie. It's a zombie robot project. But, um, <laughs> and so I was, I was obviously bummed about that. And then um, I got this call from Giacomo and he's like, hey, we're, we're going to shoot the, uh, you know, the short film based on your short story that we'd been talking about and we're going to do nice. it in London. And I was like, you know what? Damn it. I'm buying tickets to London regardless. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go see something get made here. That's and, cool. And so you awesome. actually got to watch the production? Yeah, yeah. It was really great. Cool. Do you have a cameo any, anywhere in there? No, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> cool. So for our listeners who maybe don't know about you or aren't, aren't as obsessed with your, your works as we are, why don't you talk about some of your background? Yeah, sure. Um, let's see. I uh, grew up in Oklahoma, um, Cherokee citizen, grew up within the boundaries of the Cherokee Nation, and uh, got really interested in computers and, you know, was a sci-fi geek as a kid and yeah. basically started writing books when I, well, I went to grad school to study robotics. And um, so I did this full-on PhD in robotics at Carnegie Mellon mm -hmm. in Pittsburgh. And um, right around when I was finishing, I got really, uh, I finally got something published. And that's, then I never really uh, actually got a job. I'd just been writing <laughs> books ever since then. So nice. I wrote a novel called Robopocalypse. That was a bestseller. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, like I said, Spielberg picked it up and has been playing with the idea of making a movie right. out of it for about 10 years. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and since then, I've just been writing more novels and I've had the opportunity to write video games. I wrote comics for DC. Mm -hmm. um, I've written screenplays and just short stories and anthologies. I've just had, been having a great time nice. um, doing whatever. Colin and I were at lunch just a little while ago and he was wondering, you know, at what point did he transition from, you know, being a working stiff to an, to an author. And I'm like, I, I yeah. thought that you had written your first one when you were still in college. Right? Yeah, but it How was... How to Survive a Robot Uprising? Yeah, yeah. it was nonfiction. So I was yeah. still kind of more of a journalist, sort of a nonfiction-y kind of a writer sure. um, when I first got out of school. But that first book... It had no characters, no nothing, but it got optioned for a film. Right. And it actually had Mike Myers attached to it. And, right. and Tom Lennon and Ben Garant, uh, hmm. they wrote a script. So these are the guys that wrote Night at the Museum. They're uh, like, they were in Reno 911. They were uh, Travis Jr. and uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Dangle, you know, new boot goofing. Uh, anyway, <laughs> these guys are hilarious. So I met yeah. them I met them right out of, uh, right at the beginning of my career. And I saw that they were writing screenplays and it looked really fun. And so mm -hmm. I started doing that right away. Nice. I feel like Zombieland is like the slightly <laughs> alternate universe adaptation of How to Survive a Robot in <laughs> but with the zombie case. Yeah. So. 
Well, that would that would be Max Brooks's domain then. That would be uh, right. What a, what's the one that he wrote? Well, he wrote World the War Zombie Z. Survival Guide. The yeah. Zombie, Zombie Survival, Survival Guide. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then World War Z, mm-hmm. which yeah, that's like alternate universes of mm-hmm. uh, Robopocalypse. Yeah, totally yeah. same kind of deal. Yeah. Well, I had written down a question here. How did you move from robotics into writing? But it sounds like did, you never actually worked as a roboticist outside of like interning. Uh, no, I did. I mean, I yeah, I never. When I finished, I never did get a, a job. Mm-hmm. Um, it was odd. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's was from my cohort, you know, back in graduate school. And when we finished, we had all got we had degrees in robotics and artificial intelligence. We, mm-hmm. were, we were machine learning experts, right. and there was no demand for that. Right, and it's hilarious because <laughs> it was about like two thousand seven, and. Uh, Th- those are maybe the most valuable possible skills right. that you can have right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, you know, mine have atrophied at this point. I'm just, right. I'm a writer. I've been writing for 15 years or something. So, hmm. um, but it's so funny because when we first got out, there was no, there was nothing to do with it. And then everybody kind of hung around a couple of years and came into their own. Right. But, um, yeah. So for me, I worked at Microsoft research, Palo Alto research center. Like, mm. uh, I did lots of Northrop Grumman, a military contractor, but I did that all while I was also in graduate school. Okay. Um, so, um, when the time came to actually get a job, it didn't, it didn't really work out. Nice. <laughs> Do you still tinker with robotics or, or programming these days? I, or are you pretty writing centric? Yeah, I mean, I don't really have much excuse to uh, get in to do much programming or you know or any research really. So I like uh, fool around with some machine learning for like my fantasy football team. But even that, <laughs> I've just I've decided fantasy is just unless you can predict injuries, it's completely yes. it's a lot of luck, and so it's yeah. sort of pointless. Yeah, not that people don't make careers out of applying machine learning to True. to that stuff. True. All right, well, let's uh, move into talking some more about Michael Crichton and the Andromeda strain, kind of as a prelude to moving in to talk about this project. Sure. I mean, it sounds like from some of the stuff that I've read that, that you were a big fan of, you know, techno thrillers as you came up. Um, do you have any particular affection for Crichton's work? Or? Yeah, I mean, he was just in the pantheon of, right. of people that I read when I was a kid. You know, like I was pretty much indiscriminate in what I read. I, I would read anything and everything, like a lot of. <laughs> like, like a like lot me. of kids, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I would just, some authors are really well represented on the shelves, yeah. you know? And yeah. so I'd had my time when I, you know, some of the stuff I'm embarrassed about, I'm like, why did I read so much Piers Anthony? You know, like I try to go back <laughs> and I'm like, I can't even read one page. <laughs> yeah. um, but it still has a spot in my heart, you yeah. know, the Xanth series. But like, mm-hmm. uh, so I read a lot of fantasy and science fiction and Crichton was was one of the authors that I just sort of ended up reading every book, you know, and, and same as um, Stephen King and stuff like that mm. before I sort of delved down into more specifically, you know, science fiction authors. I yeah. really started to love, but you know, I loved Crichton. I like fell for his books. I liked that there were scientists that were the heroes. I, um, I was you know, I didn't like everything. Like I remember, um, I used to watch DuckTales a lot when mm-hmm. I was a kid, which maybe will be coming back now that Disney Plus is like uh, <laughs> right. doing yeah, its it thing. Is. But like there was what I always considered the DuckTales ending where you, you get to the end of the episode and they found like an Incan city of gold. Right. And then there's like a volcano and it all gets buried. And you're like, right. ah, 
you know, or like they find like a river of diamonds, you know, and then it's mm-hmm. buried under lava. And like every time the DuckTales ending would leave it the way it started. And, mm-hmm. and, and Crichton does that a little bit. Yes. And that used to burn me up, you know, when yep. I was a kid. <laughs> but like, but for the most part, I mean, I, my, he really took my imagination and, you know, mm-hmm. held it in his hands. So, yeah, that we've, we've been talking about um, kind of our history as, as Crichton fans. And I, I tallied up, I had read 18 of his books over yeah. the years. That's how they go. Yeah. And yeah, my biggest problem with some of his books are, like it's like, like the first ninety percent was great, and then then he's like, and the end of the book happened. You know what though? I, I think that's in, on purpose. You know, mm. that's how Andromeda Strain was, right? Yes. So at the end of Andro- Andromeda Strain, they find this microbe mm. uh, on a high altitude satellite that crashes down some mm-hmm. really dumb and curious towns. <laughs> people open it up, wipes out the town. Scientists study it, and then it just evolves into another form and just escapes and i mean the scientists don't really solve anything at the end and that's that's a common theme in Mm -hmm. Crichton's stuff and and it's really because he i think fundamentally one of his themes is just that you can't win like Mm. uh people are tiny and insignificant in the face of like raw nature and Mm. the complexity of all that and of course you hear Malcolm, you know, say that a lot in mm-hmm. um, Jurassic Park and stuff like yes. that about the chaos theory and all that. Right. But like, you know, it's kind of true. It's kind of a, it's a little bit of a letdown though, right? Because we're pretty attuned to stories where the heroes win and they win very viscerally, right? Like yes. they solve the problem and the hero walks away from the explosion. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. He didn't always go for the Hollywood ending, right? No. Uh, you know, I, yeah. it was more of a Stephen King ending, I think, where, you know, <laughs> Ugh. No one got no uh, your your heroes never got killed by Christine, but Christine <laughs> wanders off into the American Midwest, and you see these other news articles about what she continues to do, and or, uh, Andromeda it, is out there, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll never get over the movie ending and the what was it, the mist or whatever the mm. when he shoots his kid, and then they, oh, God, it's just so that's terrible. a gut punch. That's different than the book, though. That's yeah. different than the book. Yeah. In that's the book, in the, the short story, mm-hmm. like again, they just. The guy's just driving off through the American Southwest, except it's um, covered in mist and there's giant primordial creatures talking around. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Or uh, in the tall grass. I don't know that one. I don't know that one either. <laughs> well, that's, that's brand new. It was just released on, uh, just adapted and released on Netflix. Oh, nice. Uh, Is it another Stephen King? Yeah, it's co-written with Joe Hill. Okay. His yeah. son. Yeah. So... Now there's so much of their stuff I can't even watch it all. I know, much less read it all. <laughs> That's like so. We started this podcast, you know, five years ago, and originally we're kind of looking at like 1970s science fiction, like Soylent Green and Planet of the Apes and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I guess that's 60s. But uh, and as we started compiling the list, we're like, you know, how many titles there are that are adapted, and it's even like it. It does seem like it's exponentially now. Everything's getting adapted. Yeah, because there's so many platforms. There's yeah, with the, with TV, it's yeah, it's it's great. There's a lot of uh, opportunity out there. So we can hold out hope that we get a Robopocalypse prestige series, right? Uh, you know, if uh, if it if the rights ever come back to me, then um, that's the first thing I'll do. Oh, yeah, nice. absolutely. But in the meantime, you know, it's still slated to be a feature um, nice. with the DreamWorks and Amblin. Okay. Those those are questions that we have later on. Sure. Down. Um, but we should probably pivot into talking about the Andromeda evolution. Yeah. Um, I haven't actually looked into this. I think Colin's read a little bit about how this project came to be. Yeah. So, so um, it came to be when I got an email from Ernie Klein, who's uh, mm-hmm. the author of Ready Player One and a mm-hmm. friend of mine. And he had been approached by a company called Crichton Sun, S-U-N, which is, uh, you know, the estate of Michael Crichton, yeah. um, his, his wife, Sherry Crichton. 
Um, and uh, they were interested. They had a few projects. They were interested in finding the right author to to like develop. And and he was like, I'm not the right author. And I'm like, and and he's like, but you might be. So if you want to reach out to them, you should. And and I was like, yes, obviously, of course. So I reached out and I kind of had a uh, a little meeting with um, w- one of Sherry's business associates mm-hmm. and. Um, it was so, felt very friendly, you know. We just talked Crichton, and then at the end of it, I realized, like, wait, like, that was a test. Like, we just talked Crichton, not for fun, to determine whether I really knew my Crichton, wow. you know, because I hadn't. I'm just so dumb. I hadn't like prepared or anything, you know. I just I just went in there and we just talked about my favorite moments, and and so uh, then we moved on to a meeting, and and it turned out that you know they were interested in. Uh, they had been looking for an author to potentially do something with the Andromeda strain, and they'd just been waiting for the stars to align because mm. this is really uh, personal, you know? It's her husband. It's not, yeah. it's, you know, we think of him as sort of a brand or just a name on the cover of a book, but th- this is a guy, a father, a husband. And yeah. so, um, who died young. Yeah, I mean, he, so. died, he died pretty young, and he never, you know, he, he passed away while Sherry was still pregnant, which is Ooh, wow. really rough, you know? Yeah. And, and so his legacy is, is super important to their family. Yeah. And, and um, that's something I kind of became aware of, you know, as it went on. Because for me, at first, I was just starstruck. I was just yeah. like, imagine, okay, I get to, like, pick up one of his most awesome worlds and play around and tell a new story in there. And it just seemed great. But mm-hmm. then I started realizing, you know, it was really important to um, honor this legacy yeah. um, for his family and also for the fans, of course, too. So, uh, yeah, so I, I kind of had an idea about what I wanted to do mm-hmm. and I explained it and uh, we hit it off and I, I got along with Sherry and, and like it, it all kind of worked out. And the way I've been thinking of it is just like a highway with a lot of exits, mm-hmm. a lot of exit yeah. ramps. And so the way that the project was set up, you know, they had the opportunity to call it at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got through outlining and I we brainstormed. I pitched all my ideas and I, you know, there were no notes or anything like that. So okay, this was nice. all just... Um, you stole a question from me. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people are curious about that. This isn't something that was on anybody's hard drive. This is simply... Uh, picking up a world and building on the mythology and carrying on an adventure. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, it's kind of exciting because look, I mean, we'd all prefer to be reading a Michael Crichton novel, but that's not going to happen. So it's either this or, you know, at a certain point, there's no more manuscripts on the hard drive. So um, I'm really excited that his worlds have been opened up and I'm looking forward to seeing what new um, adventures take place there. So Yeah, so that's how it worked. And then we just, we stayed on the highway. You know, we never, <laughs> yeah, yeah. none of the exit ramps ever came up. And so we just, uh, all the way through. And hmm. Yeah, I mean, like you said earlier, like the DuckTales kind of ending to a lot of his books could could do people favors in terms of following up on the terminal. That's totally true. Yeah. Because, and this is one of my favorites, because it really, um, well, first of all, I have a science background. Yeah. And so... You know, a lot of these characters are people I know, right, from Carnegie Mellon. (laughs) Um, And, you know, people talk about how it's a really diverse cast. I was really laughing about this with my friend yesterday. We were catching up on old times at at CMU Mm -hmm. and the Robotics Institute. And I was talking about how some of the reviewers had said that, you know, my my group of scientists was very conveniently diverse. And we were cracking up because we were like... (laughs) 
if you put together a crack squad of scientists to solve a problem, yeah. you'll be lucky if you get an American right. <laughs> at yeah. all, or maybe even a man. You know, right. like, yeah, yeah. it's like yeah, you're gonna get you're gonna get somebody from India and somebody yes. from China, and, and like I was like, man, I I did everybody a favor just throwing in one <laughs> one yeah. American guy, and he was even lucky to be on the mission. You know, like when you read the book, yeah. you see that he's sort of thrown in. Um, you know, it's just very accurate to my experience in science in terms of it being incredibly international and uh, with, with people with very different backgrounds from all over the place. Yeah. So it never even really stood out to me that there's anything, you know, SJW about it or something yeah. that, um, that like that just made sense. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I didn't notice anything until I read the notes for the movie where they talked about how the screenwriter changed one of the characters to be a woman and what a huge thing that was at the time. It was like, you have a science, you have a scientist who's a woman. Yeah. yeah, but they gave her yeah. epilepsy and they made her like the weak link. Yeah, but she right. had all the all the snarky lines too. Yeah. Right? She gave the people attitude. <laughs> yeah. Well, she was a good character for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's so, amazing how well that movie holds holds up. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that because I mean, our podcast is adapted science fiction, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we typically talk about books that are turned into movies. So like, obviously you seen the 69 movie have you seen the miniseries adaptation no i never did okay. and i honestly i didn't want to um mess up my or sort of affect my my writing because sure. honoring Crichton to me meant honoring the novel you yes. know so like i didn't want to get my wires crossed you know how it is once you mm-hmm. see the movie you cannot undo you can't it. Unsee it so i don't need yeah. to be like referencing if they're male in the book you know they need to be male mm-hmm. <laughs> in my sequel like i can't yes. Um, let the movies affect that. So um, I didn't rewatch either of the films. I, okay. I, but I'll tell you, I mean, I reread that book like front and back like a thousand times, of course, <laughs> trying to get all the details right. Nice. You want to ask him the Indian question? <laughs> so early on in the novel, um, and in the original novel, The Andromeda Strain, when I can't remember, it's the general who needs to call in the wildfire. Initiative, mm-hmm. And he has to call binary 87, code. I think it is, in mm-hmm. binary. And he dials it, and he dialed it backwards from the way I would have done it. Oh, really? <laughs> um, just because, like, if you type in a calculator, it'll spit out, you know, 100. Well, no, I, I was thinking of it in BCD at first. <laughs> and so, so I'm like, oh, that's not right. And then I looked up, oh, oh right, okay. It's actually <laughs> binary. But I brought up this gripe with Colin. I'm like, that, that's backwards. And he's like, no, 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 it's little Indian um, <laughs> instead of big Indian. E-N-D-I-A. Yeah, yes, yeah. Indian, yes. Well, your complaint was it was uh, bitwise versus bitewise. Right. <laughs> and we had a long discussion about whether, you know, little Indian versus big Indian meant bitewise or bitwise. And, yeah. you know, I had done electronics in 1988, and I remember doing it both ways. Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah. Oh, was there, was I mean, that something you picked up on when you read it? No, I didn't. Uh, that one I didn't pick up on. I mean, I was like... Uh, it was interesting to me that he explained, mm-hmm. you know, binary to the to right. the audience. And it's like... So that's actually something I stayed true to in, mm-hmm. the, in this novel is I tried to keep it technical. You know, I tried mm-hmm. to explain a lot of stuff. And some people kind of are complaining about it. They're like, well, it's, yeah. too, it's too much at the beginning. I mean, because I let up after a while and just start letting the plot go faster yeah. and faster. But um, I'm like, well, you know, that's, that's Crichton, right? Yes. That's how he did it in a lot of his work. Mm-hmm. I mean, he literally explained binary. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's like textbook stuff. Right. I, I mean, I can remember mm-hmm. n- not wanting to learn that. Mm-hmm. 
I feel like going back to 1968 or whenever the original novel was written, that seems more necessary then than now. I feel like you could kind of trust the audience to understand without having to lay out the, you know, yeah. two to the power of zero and two to the power of one and, and all that kind mm. of stuff. So it, it can come out a little didactic. Um, yeah. But uh, I didn't find anything like that in Andromeda Evolution. But uh, Well, that was the other thing that, about his... Um about the Andromeda strain is that it was, it was all made up. Like, so, yes. I mean, okay. So explain, I mean, binary, you're not going to like uh, make that up, but sure. like, uh, all the quotes, all the references, I mean, those are all made up. None of those people are real. And like, right. <laughs> so for me, like I was, I realized, Oh, cause I thought a lot of that stuff must've been real. Like he was just referencing real stuff, you know, yeah. he just did some research and put it in the book, mm-hmm. but, um, mostly he didn't. And I think he just wrote, and in fact, it's funny because he's got a bibliography at the end of Andromeda mm-hmm. Strain. And of course, so I put a bibliography at the end of Andromeda Evolution. Mm-hmm. And I've got these very gung-ho copy editors. And they're like, this isn't the right <laughs> c- citation style. This, What is this? And I'm like, I did it the way he did it. But he did it all over the place because right. he just wrote what looked like a bibliography there wasn't anybody yeah. checking it you know so this one is um and drop it to evolution I, because people now have the internet and they can just look up all this stuff i had to be a little more sneaky mm. um in um sneaking in my my silly sci-fi stuff and then also half the time having it be a real reference you know to yeah. something that really happened or to a real space station or a real module or whatever that was one of my favorite things from your novel actually is how it wove you know the entire earth space program all together and gave various explanations for things that happened or didn't happen (laughs) yeah why would russia and the united states cold war enemies ever make international space station dun 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 yeah unless there's something they both were interested in studying dun 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 (laughs) that's probably brings up another question is is how spoilery we want to get on this oh yeah so if you want to keep it way up here or if you want to keep it yeah let's do so so some of this novel takes place on the international space station right and that's and then a lot of it takes place in the amazon you know Mm -hmm. so um yeah i think but let's not let's not spoil those because it's just so much fun when you get to the uh, to the end and the honestly the book just goes nuts at the mm-hmm. end. It and I the pacing love just it. goes and goes because and goes. What are you doing? I mean, you're reading right. the book. You're, you're be entertained, right? Mm-hmm. Like, come on. Yeah. Let loose. Have fun. And, and you know who told me that most of all were the NASA scientists that I consulted with. So I consulted with a bunch of people from NASA JPL, and mm-hmm. NASA Johnson Space Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say... Come on, can you really, could you really do that? Could the, could you, could the ISS do this or would that be on the ISS? And, mm-hmm. and they're like, uh, well, possibly, but <laughs> don't worry about it. It's right. science fiction. Have fun. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, look, it's possible, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so that's good enough, right. whether it's probable or not. You yeah. Know? Except at one point, I did accidentally write down that the ISS was going, I think, from east to west or west to east. Go in the wrong direction, <laughs> and the uh, and I had had my friend at NASA read the read the the section, and he goes, "Well, I had a little note here." He's like, "Unless uh, you used up all the propellant to slow down the ISS and put it <laughs> in it reverse, it's like then it, it sure wouldn't be going like from this direction that direction." And I was like, "No." I didn't want to imply that they had <laughs> a translation or whatever. Um, let's just make it go the right direction. Thank yeah. you for the note. Well, I feel like one of the one of the kind of trademark things from Crichton was to walk you up to the edge of the state of the art of science and then 
jump across it without you ever realizing that you did. Mm-hmm. And so like tons of stuff in his books, I'm like, is that real? I think that might be real. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it, it always kind of walks that line. And I did want to talk to you about um, the fact that with, with your robotics background, you, I saw that you stayed in your lane a little bit and, and <laughs> had uh, had sort of references to Amped um, with uh, Sophie's brain computer interface. Oh, yeah, the BCI. Then, but yeah, that's real, you yeah. know. Right, and I, I wanted to talk about that. I had, like, how real is that? Yeah, you know, one thing I asked was, um, one thing I asked NASA about a lot was, you know, would they send a person with a disability into space as an yeah. astronaut? Um, because this is a character who's got... Uh, kind of like this this sort of same thing that Stephen Hawking had you know right. like but she's uh, been treating it as best she can it's like ALS mm-hmm. but it's um a, it's a, been slowed down but it's a degenerative nerve disease and yeah. so she's got a brain computer interface that lets her control um like the robonaut various mm-hmm. systems on board the ISS it makes her actually a very efficient astronaut because her right. legs are just bundled up and they're not very useful on earth and mm-hmm. they're you know and they don't need to be useful in, in um, sure. microgravity. So um, the, Na- the NASA folks said that it's actually quite likely that a person with a disability will be going up sooner hmm. rather than later, and that there's no reason that that would be any kind of, uh, you know, uh, verboten thing that would sure. never happen. Okay. But uh, yeah, I forgot the question. Sorry. Um, uh, yeah, just talking just about that. How realistic the brain computer yeah, interface so, thing was. So her BCI is... Um, I mean, yeah, that stuff all exists, right? People have gotten electrodes on their motor cortex that allow them to control robot arms and things like that. At this point, it's like, I think, just experiments. I don't think that people are just living with these, mainly because, you know, it has to be... It's just the problem of just it getting infected, right? right. Because it's um, it's going through your skull. Right. The, right. So there's a lot of... Um, other uh, interfaces that just sit on top of your scalp, you know, right. and just and measure from out there. Obviously, you don't get quite as much resolution from right. out there. Right. But, Doc Brown yeah. never got that working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's all real stuff. Um, and then the RoboNot is, of course, completely real. Is it? Um, okay. This yeah. is something I didn't know. Oh, yeah. No, I, that's how I ended up talking to my guy at NASA, I have all these friends in robotics. And so I was like, who's doing the Robonaut these days? You know, (laughs) the Robonaut's like a humanoid form factor robot, but it's, it's like very complicated and dangerous to go outside of the spaceship, outside of the station, the station. Right. Um, so it's easier to stick one, you know, the idea would be to stick one of these humanoid robots on the end of the, uh, the robot arm and just Mm -hmm. move it around and do all your tasks from inside, you know? Um, and so it needs a human form factor. You control it, you know, the same way. It's it's one to one control. Five finger, you know, the same hands, the same arms. Right. Um, so yeah, so so it would be natural for her to control that through a through a BCI. Yeah, I thought that was cool. <laughs> yeah, it was. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I thought it was totally cool that she used it to talk to the general, kind of face to face. Oh, creepy, right? That was a little <laughs> Robopocalypse stuff. You yes. know, like I was getting into my Robopocalypse frame of mind there. The way it's watching him, you know, mm-hmm. and he doesn't realize it. Right. <laughs> That's so creepy. Yeah. Yeah. The, the book seems like a great blend of his writing style, where you do some, some foreshadowing about what's going to come up as you just drop it very casually at the end of a chapter. <laughs> and then, you know, Robopocalypse and, and everything else you've written. It's, it's, it's really nice. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I kind of look at like I did want to pay homage to the uh, to the initial book in honor of the legacy and and make sure that it's a Crichton book you know so that mm-hmm. 
you feel the same themes and the same rhythm and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's no way to completely try to copy somebody. And if you do, I think you're bound to fail because yes. you're never going to be that person. Mm-hmm. So I really tried to find a good, happy medium between the strengths of my own style and my own voice and, and, and his. And I think part of the reason that the book is getting good reviews and it's and it's a fun read is just that uh, you know Crichton and I already are a little bit simpatico in yeah. terms of you know he ha- was a technical guy that used his knowledge to you know um to make very realistic science fiction and then yeah. I've kind of been doing the same thing following in those footsteps so um yeah hopefully our my voice and his are close enough that people still have fun yeah so no notes everything was just completely off the cuff yeah, I just built up a story uh, based on um, really the kind of questions I had after reading the first mm-hmm. novel. You know, I wanted to know there's so much room to build on the mythology and explore. And also just to think, what would people really do? You know, what would the next 50 years look like if mm-hmm. you'd found this possibly highly dangerous particle right. that's just freely available in Earth's atmosphere? And then also, why would it be here? You know, mm-hmm. and and then... With it being so dangerous and with it affecting the space programs the way it, the way it did because it's, you know, at the end of Andromeda strain, it's eating plastic at high altitudes. And it's really messing up the space program. Um, you know, how would the countries deal with that and what kind of sabotage and, mm-hmm. you know, all, all kinds of conspiracy theories and yeah. things go into it? I couldn't figure out if it was pessimistic or just really realistic about the idea that if if all countries had access to this, would they all be playing their own little side game? And I'm like, I don't think that's pessimistic. Yeah. That's very realistic. No, there'd be different, I think there'd be different alliances and people betraying each other. I mean, it would just be the usual. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, the usual stuff. Yeah. 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 One of the things that I enjoy about the Andromeda Strain and then forward into the Andromeda Evolution is that there's kind of some theorizing that goes on in both you know well well maybe it's this well maybe it's that Mm -hmm. and everything that you get that you could call a quote-unquote answer is just the opinion of a really smart person but they could be wrong yeah and and so i was like i was looking at well if you're going to be writing this book yeah you have some questions coming out of it right is this thing biological or is it technological or is it some mix of the two and you got to kind of answer it your way through the voices of these characters but I want to know, like, do you have, do you have like somewhere written down canon, this thing is, you know, X or is Y? Um, I kind of wanted to, so, so part of what I think is really fun about Crichton's writing is that it's driven by curiosity. Mm-hmm. Usually the characters are curious. They're figuring out a mystery, you know, in Congo, they're trying to figure out why those people got killed, you right. know, in Andromeda Strain, they're trying to figure out what this thing is and how to stop it. Mm-hmm. And so the pleasure of reading the book is going along for that ride. Mm -hmm. And every time they get a little bit of new information, you get a little closer. And then every now and then there's kind of an, Oh my God moment. And it recontextualizes everything you've seen so far. You're like, wait, okay, no, it's that. Mm -hmm. And then you get a few of those, you know, and like by the end, ideally you have some sort of idea of what it is, Mm -hmm. but the real pleasure is not, knowing it's like learning you know Mm -hmm. and having your curiosity fed as you go and and honestly it's like science you know every answer you get creates like 10 more questions and so I really tried to honor that you know with Mm -hmm. this so constantly these really smart people are are making life or death decisions and they have to make these decisions based on 
their knowledge of what this thing is, if they're wrong, they could be walking into like suicide, right. you know? So there are a lot of scenes where smart people are theorizing out loud about what they think this is based on the data that they've collected or the mm-hmm. experiments they've done. And, um, and I mean, I just think that that's a really fun, it's fun to walk through that. So I, as I moved through the novel, like I kind of knew what the end game was and I knew, uh, You know, I never really did try to establish bedrock and then walk toward it. Mm -hmm. I instead sort of let the curiosity like dictate the pace at which we'd be learning new things. Mm. And in the end, we still don't know. Right. Exactly. I'm not trying to tell anybody, oh, you know, it's midichlorians. You know, (laughs) there it is. Now, you know, is everybody happy? Right. No. The thing is, it's not going to make you happy to know. Um, So like at the end, I introduced the biggest mystery of all, you know, Mm -hmm. and like that's what's fun you know that's what Crichton did mm-hmm. um and and that's what i uh that's what i wanted to honor you know in my version so with that kind of an ending which is you know very classically Crichton-esque uh is that where things sit or will we expect to see another book with you know more answers and exploration in it you know i wanted to leave it i wanted to leave some space for that right some to build on that mythology make it even bigger um make the stakes even higher mm-hmm. you know i mean like that's right. what you got to do so um, if it's me, if it's someone else, if, if there's a chance to write a third in mm-hmm. the series, then, um, you know, there's lots of room to, to have a really cool adventure. Um, so maybe it'll be another 50 years from now. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> or maybe, you know, maybe not. Like, uh, I'm not sure. Part of it depends on how well the book does. I mean, honestly, it's a really cool experiment, right? This yeah. is the first time. And I'm really honored to, to be the, the person who got to carry the banner this time, you know, um, no one's ever been invited to to carry on an adventure in one of Michael Crichton's worlds mm-hmm. um, in this way, and so it's an experiment. We'll see, you know, we'll see if pe- how people feel about it. You know, yeah. it just came out last week, so that's doing well so far, and uh, nice. we'll see. But I would, you know, I would love to keep going at some point. Mm-hmm. Are you still doing? I, this is kind of side tangent thing. I, it's more about other work or projects that you have sure. going on. I know that you've. Um, participated in a number of um, anthologies with John Joseph Adams, yeah. mm-hmm. um, Robot Uprisings. I know that you've done, you've contributed to other ones as well. Oh yeah, um, but you were an editor on a Robot Uprisings. Are you doing any of that work these days? Uh, no, not really, not right now. I I released a I, a collection of short stories called Guardian Angels and Other Monsters. Mm. And that was really fun. So I got to put all my short stories together because that's what got me into science fiction was reading pulp short yeah. story, pulp sci-fi, like. I love the short story. The mm-hmm. form, the format of it is, it was my comic books, you know, for right. me when I was a kid, cause it's quick, mm-hmm. you get a little thrill at the end. And so, um, I always wanted to be able to do that magic trick of writing a great short story. Yeah. It's something I've been, you know, working on forever. I started writing those in high school and mm-hmm. middle school. So yeah, uh, I am still writing short stories. I mean, I have another, I have one for another one of John Joseph Adams anthologies, mm. uh, early next year. I kind of quit for a little while cause I was focused on other projects. I mean, short stories are kind of a tough game. Mm. You, uh, get maybe 
couple hundred bucks or something and right. it takes a month yeah. <laughs> so it's like oh, i got three kids man right. like it's, <laughs> um i mean maybe it takes me a month there's other mm-hmm. people that can i mean uh sean and mcguire she can probably write a short story mm-hmm. in the amount of time it takes me to like uh, get myself to get in front of the computer yeah but um my favorite uh, story from robot uprisings was was hers was, yeah. the velveteen rabbit wars fantastic yeah so good yeah. <laughs> she's so creative i love it yeah that, um yeah it's, uh, it's terrible sitting next to her there on a panel because she's, oh, she's too funny and smart. <laughs> and I, I end up just sitting there silent the whole time. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so what I do is I often, you know, I also write screenplays and I've sold television projects and things like that. I haven't had anything produced, but mm-hmm. it's, um, it's also really fun and it's a really creative outlet. And, yeah. and often I'll develop my short stories um, and go out and try to sell them. And so hmm. I'll write short stories just to get dip my toes into a world and get a feel for yeah. whether I want to tell stories there, which characters I, I really care about there. Hmm. Um, and there's nothing like actually having to... It's like when you have a funny story in your head and then you go and try to say it out loud. Right. And then you, as you <laughs> say it out loud, you realize like, ooh, okay, like... <laughs> You, you fix it on the fly in order to make it right. funny. And like that's how it is. You have a story in your head, but if you don't um, tell it, if you don't write it down, you don't really get a feel for whether it's any good. Right. Uh, so, so I had one more question for sure. you. and Because uh, it is getting close to, to cut off time. Mm-hmm. You sound like you did a lot of research on this. And uh, I was wondering, was there any one particular thing that you learned doing your research that was either really, really cool or completely scary? <laughs> scary. Uh, well, so... You know, I'm always looking for, like, little details that are just, um, I don't know, really fun. I mean, that's what I kind of look for. The scary stuff tends to be high-concept stuff. But, Mm. um, you know, dealing with, playing around with Robonaut, like, at NASA Johnson, was a little bit scary. Because it's a much stronger than a person. And it has all these safety constraints built Mm. in. Like, there's a three-layer level of safety built in, like... uh, so that it can work with people without accidentally ripping their arms off. Right. But, yeah. you know, shaking hands with it and just realizing how strong it is mm-hmm. and how inhuman it is, in, inhumanly strong it is. You know, it's like uh, grabbing a hold of a forklift or something and trying mm-hmm. to shake hands. You know, so that, you know, I thought that was pretty interesting just viscerally. And then finding out that, you know, they've got the Robonaut is designed to, if there's rapid depressurization, you know, it's, it's designed to be fine. So it's got these ball bearing joints that allow like all the air to escape without blowing it, without, you know, creating Mm -hmm. any pressure differentials and breaking it. Mm -hmm. So just realizing how capable that Robonaut is, (laughs) was, uh, was a little bit spooky seeing that. And then just, um, you know, looking at the one thing I was really impressed by was just, uh, Looking at the development of the International Space Station and realizing it's almost entirely Russian. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, Americans are not, we, we don't lead, we didn't lead the charge in terms of building, orbiting spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Like, that was the Russians. They knew how to do it. They figured it out mm-hmm. with Mir, and then the whole space station started with their modules, and they're still the beating heart. Mm-hmm. And, and just kind of realizing, oh, like, <laughs> I sort of thought the Americans were were leading the charge on all this, and then no, no, and and you know, finding out little details about the space station. Like one of my favorites is just that 
we Americans spent like hundreds of millions of dollars routing all of the life support on the exterior so that they can close the modules in case there's a you know a, a leak they can just shut the door between the modules and it'll like be a, an airlock you know like lock that part off right and uh the russians just uh run all the life support through a tube that goes through the door and then there's an axe <laughs> And wow. so if there's a problem, that's, and that's in, in the novel, I, right. I mean, you can't not put something that cool in. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I was also, I asked questions like, you know, are there any weapons on the space station? And right. they're like, well, yeah, there's a, you know, a shotgun. And I'm like, why? <laughs> and then the Soyuz, you know, oh, well, you know, one time uh, some, some of the Russian astronauts put down uh, in the middle of Russia, just in, and they were there for a couple days. It took a little while. They were blown off course. And mm-hmm. there were wolves. So... <laughs> The shot, they were like sitting in their in their return craft, mm-hmm. waiting to be picked up with wolves circling. <laughs> Fresh and it's like so now they've got a shotgun in there. <laughs> like, so I mean, there's no end to, of fun facts that you'll yeah. discover if you uh, if you go on a little NASA tour or if you go research some of this stuff. Nice, cool. It almost makes it a challenge when you read a book then to say, well, I wonder if he made that up or is that <laughs> something he learned or right. Yeah. Well, with with this book, you never know. So you know, get ready to go online and start doing internet searches you know, if you yes. want to know the, oh. the truth Absolutely. yeah I, I did that to start looking up the original uh, references in the Andromeda Strain yeah. and I couldn't find any of them they're not there and then I, I read where the, uh, the the guy from was doing the screenplay for the movie did the same thing and realized he could just invent all the techno jargon that he wanted yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. I'm well, glad to see you, you're continuing that tradition yeah. <laughs> well even down to the whole messenger theory idea right where we were trying oh, yeah. to look oh, up oh yeah well you know messenger theory was some of the stuff that he made up has real world corollary right so like the question of where is everybody fermi's Mm -hmm. paradox is that right like that's the messenger theory Mm -hmm. but that's the real one so there's like he didn't i'm sure that Crichton independently came up with that Mm -hmm. um but uh so for me i'm like okay well which what do i call it of course i gotta go with the gospel you know (laughs) from andromeda strain yeah so i don't have any other uh questions i mean i do want to ask about other projects i just want to say i really enjoyed the book and and uh well, thank, really thank you for doing this yeah thanks yeah it was it was a hoot um look i hope lots of people get a chance to read it and um you yeah. know get get that Crichton feel yeah <laughs> so any other projects that you're working on now that this one's in the bank yeah i am um i'm developing a tv series based on a short story okay. so that's kind of just you know it's in the yeah. <laughs> it's in the development stage so i'm taking a little break from um writing a novel at this moment um makes sense gone back over to writing some screenplays and things like that uh just in you know until i get my my research done for the next novel so. nice cool. cool looking forward to hear more about that yeah thanks right. yeah we've been we've been uh, waiting with great anticipation being able to cover robopocalypse on our podcast so. oh yeah <laughs> so someday hopefully we've been doing it five years you catch so. the backlog yeah, yeah. Right. well thanks guys it was great chatting yeah, yeah. thanks so much for, for hosting us here I really appreciate it no worries so. alright we'll sign off let me get rid of this cat <laughs> oh, no. I knew you were going to be Sounds of cat removal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no giggling. Go back. Go find a way through the house to get back here, buddy. <laughs>